This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. I got to get to a troubling headline, Tim. We talked about it yesterday about the gaps and who is getting the vaccines around the U.S. It's something you guys talked about a lot on Quick Take today. Yeah, it's not just an issue here in New York City. This is something that's happening throughout the country. There are patterns emerging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Blacks I- and Hispanics are not getting vaccines at the same rate that the uh, that uh, white Americans are. And we're tracking this at Bloomberg. We're tracking what's going on around the country. So let's talk about this for our daily check on the virus and vaccine rollout. Dr. Uh, Ola Dejay, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Ola Lodge. Olajide, excuse me, Dr. Olajide Williams, Chief of Staff of Neurology at uh, Columbia University. He's an NIH-funded researcher, a leading health disparities expert with research focused on community-based behavioral interventions. He's also the founder, president, and board chair of Hip Hop Public Health. I was spending and watching some videos last night. Bloomberg Philanthropies, by the way, has provided a grant to Hip Hop Health, and he joins us on the phone in New York City. Dr. Olajide, forgive me, first of all, I just can't speak any words, apparently, today. It is so nice to have you here with us. Um, how are you? And, and tell me what you're seeing in terms of COVID and the vaccine rollout. Well, the, the good news is um, in terms of COVID here in New York City, um, so I work at um, New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia University campus. And um, the good news is that, um, you know, we are seeing, um, we are seeing, you know, our rates of COVID inpatients trickle down, um, our admission rates uh, trickle down, and, and we've been seeing that slowly but steadily. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a welcome relief, uh, given uh, you know my experience on the front lines at the height of the pandemic when it took uh, New York City by surprise. Um, but on, on, on another front, um, I'm actually very, very concerned um, about... Um, about the vaccine coverage um, situation, um, as you as you led with uh, in, in, in this segment, there are striking disparities. Um, again, afflicting those who uh, suffer suffer the most: um, communities of color, poor neighborhoods, uh, disenfranchised Americans. Uh, they're the ones, uh, really, who have borne the brunt of the COVID death and morbidity rates, and, and they're the ones now, um, really. Um, really, uh, you know, really not being engaged sufficiently uh, enough and, and um, you know, savvily enough um, to, uh, you know, in a way that, that would enable uh, increased uptake of the vaccine. You know, we, we have to earn back trust, uh, Kim and Carol. Um, you know, trust was broken over hundreds and hundreds of years uh, of, you know, of quite frankly systemic inequities and structural racism and um, and great mistrust with the medical community, and we're seeing those effects now. Uh, so we have to be more creative, and we have to be more purposeful uh, uh, to earn back the trust of these communities so that we can get vaccination coverage rates up. Because the bottom line is, uh, we're all in this together, and and uh, we, we are all connected. And if one link in this chain uh, is not strong, then um, we won't be able to, you know, climb our way out of this pandemic. 
Yeah, Dr. Williams, what is a good way to do that? What is the, the right way? Uh, what is the effective way to communicate the, the benefits of the vaccine and, and earn back that trust? The way to do it is, is, is um, for me, is through partnership. Hmm. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, sincere partner, you know, there, there are certain dynamics where there is a situation is called a partnership, uh, but there's clearly someone calling the shots and the other person uh, pretty much uh, being overlooked. Uh, so what we need here is a, is a real partnership between the medical community uh, and, and the community, these communities of color. Uh, what I mean by that is we, we need to include them at the table. Um, we need to work with that, with that, with the leadership in, in communities of color, uh, with uh, you know those who have been working on the front lines of health promotion on behalf of the community, those trusted individuals, whether it's a church pastor or a community advocate, or whether it's just a community-based organization, a CBO that's been doing great work and is trusted in that community. We need to identify these credible messengers, have them at the table with us. And, and, and decide together how to address this. You know, gone are the days of, of, of you know, developing in, interventions uh, in, in, the, in our own bastions of educational excellence and then, and then serving those interventions on a tray to these communities. Now, that never worked, and that only served to increase these disparities. What we need to do now is to design the strategy in partnership with these individuals because that's the only way that these approaches are more likely to be accepted uh, and they're more likely to, to be carried out. And, and so that's really the prescription. Uh, the good news is that I think that folks have recognized the importance of what we call community participation in decision-making and in planning and strategy. And um, I'm just hoping that we're not too late to the game. Yeah. We are as well. Um, Dr. Elijah Day Williams, Chief of Staff of Neurology at Columbia University. He's also the founder, president, and board chair of Hip Hop Public Health. Bloomberg Philanthropies has provided a grant to Hip Hop Health, and he joins us, still with us, I should say, on the phone in New York City. Hey, one thing I want to ask you, Dr. Williams, and Tim and I were talking about it in the break. You talk about minority communities and their hesitation in terms of getting the vaccine. How much is hesitation, nervousness, and understandably because of, you know, what we've seen, you know, in history in terms of how minorities have been treated when it comes to the medical community? And how much is just an inability, you know, if you're working all day, then you've got to get on a website and try to find, you know, even just get signed up to take a vaccine. How much is it is also that it's just not an easy system to get it done. Yeah, no, I think it's both. You know, we, we know that from from surveys of, of of in communities of color, we know that hesitancy is a big is a big component of this. You know, that's that we're clear about. But another very important component is access. You know, lack of access to making appointments, difficulty navigating the vaccine enrollment system, whether it's online or whether it's via phone. You know, transportation to vaccine sites. You know, a lot of individuals in the first waves have been the older individuals, 65 and above, 75 and above, and now folks with comorbidities. These are folks that are often older and might have, you know, uh, transportation challenges because they need a wheelchair or a walking aid. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, so access is definitely playing a very important role and more so in communities where you have a high burden of comorbid, comor comorbid illnesses. They're the ones least likely to want to, to travel to a destination to get the vaccine. And they're the ones that are in most need of having 
local community-based vaccination sites right next door that they can go to. So it's a combination of both, but there's no question, Kim and Carol, that the data is very clear that hesitancy is also playing a role. So let's let's talk about your website and, and this organization that you've created, Hip Hop Public Health. It's very cool. I was watching videos last night about HIV and eating healthy, and you guys do it in a fun way. I mean, it's hip hop, it's a song, it's got lyrics, but it's also got really strong messages that I think, and I'm assuming really stay with people. Tell me about this organization and the impact that you that you find that it's having and really reaching people. Sure, thank you. So, you know, Hip Hop Public Health was really born out of my frustration uh, with the with traditional public health messages in the black community. I felt that the penetration of these public health communication campaigns uh, wasn't really sufficient. And a lot of the, the work we did working directly with, communi- with community members confirmed uh, this really poor translation of com- of public health into the community. And, and they really came up uh, with the suggestions for us to use a new model. Uh, and hip hop really made a lot of sense and it was really pushed and promoted by the youth that we were engaging around how best to do this. Uh, you know, I, as a neurologist, uh, Kim and Carol, I, I'm also um, uh, really uh, interested in music and its role in the mm-hmm. brain. Yeah. You know, a lot of people don't realize that, that music actually occupies more real estate more neural real estate in our brains than language itself. Wow. You know, music, music augments learning. It, 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 it augments our memories. Uh, music uh, creates positive associations. You know, music in, increases our attention. And music has such powerful neurological uh, 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 strengths and attributes that, you know, it's one of the reasons why, if you think about how we learned our ABCs, we learned it through, through song. If you think about movies that we watch, right, if you think about Darth Vader, right, you know he's imminent, you know he's about to approach. Those emotions start rousing as soon as you hear that, that music. If you think about Rocky, the, the, Rocky, the Rocky series, you think about that music that's played and how it connects with your emotion and what it motivates you to go that extra mile when you're on the treadmill. You know, music has such powerful, powerful features. And even as a neurologist, looking after stroke patients, we use a form of music called music intonation therapy to help patients speak again. Right. We use it in our nursing homes to deal with agitation amongst dementia. So our, our position at Hip Hop Public Health is that music has an incredibly transformative power right. that needs to be better, better leveraged within public health. I totally agree. I remember early in my career doing a story about how somebody who had a, a, a brain injury and they used music, the family, um, to bring him back to health. So it's really amazing. Dr. Um, Olajide uh, Williams, I hope you can come back and join us once again. Chief of Staff of Neurology uh, at Columbia University, founder of Hip Hop Public Health. Definitely check out uh, their website. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So the gig economy is here. We know that. It's also perhaps a on a bigger mission, uh, Tim, thanks to a big and recent vote in California. Yeah, that's right. And right now we have Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, joining us on the remote from Brooklyn, and Josh Idelson, labor reporter at Bloomberg News, who joins us on the phone from San Francisco. In the latest Bloomberg Businessweek report, the gig economy is coming for millions of American jobs. Um, Josh, uh, or Joel, excuse me, um, this is this was a, a fascinating read because we were talking about this on our call this morning, and Prop 22 in California got so much attention and we're all wondering what ended up happening after the vote. What are the effects of it? 
Well, and we're only uh, beginning to sort of get a sense of what that um, uh, looks like. And that was sort of the question that Josh, being the wonderful uh, labor reporter that he is, set out uh, uh, to sort of attempt to answer. And, you know, his reporting, as, as I'm sure he'll, he'll share with us here, took, us to, took him to a lot of places, both at uh, gig companies like the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world, but also to the other side of the table with labor. Um, and and I, in general, I just think, you know, this area that Josh has been reporting on all, all year is like one of the most sort of the most uh, one of the most important actually in the in the pandemic, which is the, the relationship between employees and employers. And what Prop 22 really showed was that there's this alternative version of work where where companies can um, basically not have people on their books. They, they become contractors. And uh, Josh, like, I'll turn it over to you here. Like, what, what, where could that go? What, did, what did your reporting find out? So, there's a lot of discussion these days about the gig economy and a so-called future of work. But part of what I wanted to get across in this story is the core of this fight has been going on for as long as we've had labor law in the U.S. There've always been companies trying to make fewer and fewer laborers actually be covered by labor law by poking and stretching loopholes in it. And at one time, the fight was about William Randolph Hearst's Newsies. Now we see it most prominently discussed about workers like Uber drivers, but in sectors from construction to teaching to mixed martial arts, you have workers and companies squaring off about whether those companies have enough control over the workers to be legally responsible for them. And we've seen executives and investors look to all sorts of sectors as places where the Prop 22 model would be appealing to them to have what they would say is a a more flexible arrangement and what some workers worry would mean having the rug pulled out from under you, that you don't have basic guarantees anymore like being paid for each minute that you're working. So give us some examples of this, Josh, because I think a lot of people think about it from the perspective of people who are in the, you know, ride ride hailing ride sharing industry those folks who drive for uber and for lyft maybe people who deliver groceries for a company like vons for example as in your story um or or deliver food from restaurants like grubhub um where else could we see this well this trend of companies trying to get work done by people without having them on their payroll We see it in all sorts of sectors. I talked to David Weil, who ran wage and hour enforcement under President Obama, who pointed out it's a trend that has in some ways moved up the wage scale, that we may associate it more with places like logistics, but it's happening in healthcare, it's happening in various sorts of service, it's happening in the government and in nonprofits as well. You know, what's interesting, and I got to say, Josh, um, you were on earlier on um, Bloomberg Television, and Matt Miller put out a question. He said, how did this happen? California, it's a progressive state. We looked at California to kind of figure out the ethical and right way forward, right, with quotes around it. But so how did this get through California? One factor here was that the companies way outspent the opposition and outspent the spending on every past ballot measure. Mm. They spent $200 million to get across a message in ads and other places. They were also able to put the 
message in their own apps. And part of that message was that this was necessary for many of the people doing the work to get to still do the work, uh, which sends a, a powerful signal. So, so Josh, now that we've seen the success that, you know, this basically this business model was on the ballot with Prop 22, and now that the companies have seen the success that, that uh, they were able to basically appeal to voters and that voters back them up on it, where, what does that mean for, for organized labor and where this conversation could go nationwide? Well, both the companies and the unions are in a tricky position here with opportunities and threats that were created by the November election, where on the one hand, Prop 22 passed, and on the other hand, you now have a narrowly Democratic Congress and a Democratic president who campaigned on being someone who was against Prop 22 and in favor of making it harder for companies to claim workers were contractors. And so the companies have pushed for something like Prop 22 to be a model, but what this story digs into is that at the same time, those same companies are signaling they would rather not have to square off over and over with unions. They would rather cut a deal and yeah. find a way to no longer be at war with these unions, but get to continue classifying those workers as not employees. Well, it's an important story and certainly something that is so relevant right now. Um, Josh, thank you so much. Josh Idelson, labor reporter at Bloomberg News. Find that story online. And of course, our thanks to Jill Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so one of our top stories at this hour, we've got another winter storm heading for the eastern central U.S., so it's threatening to bring more snow to the northeast and icy rain to the southern states already, Tim, enduring power outages amid a very deep freeze. Yeah, and one person who has been in that deep freeze is Rachel Adams Heard, oil and gas reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from Houston. Rachel, I'm really glad to connect with you because on Quick Take this morning, we wanted you to come on to give us the latest from Houston. You emailed us early this morning. You said you had no power you had one bar left on your cell phone um how are you doing uh i still don't have power i still have one bar on my cell phone um i was able to do a quick charge uh in the car earlier today um but it's been a pretty cold dreary rainy sad day um luckily i still have water which has become kind of today's unique crisis um a lot of friends and family uh, had their water cut off this morning. Some had their pipes explode. Um, and we're actually supposed to be boiling our water right now, um, but we don't have power. So uh, a lot of people are just kind of out of luck when it you're, comes to you've water. Been, you've been advised to boil your water because it can be contaminated right now? Right. The pressure is so low that the entire city is under a uh, boil notice. And... So is Austin at this point, and I haven't been able to check Dallas recently, but they might also. Well, I feel for you. I've got a bunch of family throughout Texas and different cases where either generators being used or people are going through rolling power, you know, um, blackouts like you're dealing with, it sounds like. So what I'm curious, Rachel, is how did this all happen? It's something Tim and I talked about. I know he talked about it on Quick Take. We certainly talked about it on Bloomberg Radio. You've got a story out that you talk about the black swan blackout. There were a lot of things that went wrong at once. Just walk us through them if you could. 
Yeah, I mean, I think especially when you're sitting in the cold without power, you don't know what you're going to do about water. Everyone's kind of grasping for that one answer to what happened to to allow this to happen to so many people in the state. Um, And the kind of unfortunate and scary truth is that it's this confluence of factors that are going to take a long time and a lot of money to address, which is why we didn't address them last time that our grid was tested like this, which was a decade ago in 2011. Um, And and so you had uh, natural gas freeze-offs at the wellhead all the way, you know, in the Permian Basin in West Texas. Then you had power plant failures. You already had a lot of capacity that was offline because these plants were undergoing maintenance, ironically, for summer demand. And and then you had all of these you know, lines being down because of the ice and that kind of thing. And at the end of the day, you just had this massive strain on the system. And it, we just weren't prepared for this at all. So what does the immediate future look like for you and the, the millions of other people who have been affected by this? What does the next 48 hours look like? I think that's what's so scary to so many people is we don't know. We don't have an answer. Um, you know, Monday we were told, like, if you don't have power, Uh, that afternoon you probably weren't going to have it until tonight and then that stretched into tuesday and now i didn't lose power until last night um but i haven't gotten it back at all since it went out um and like i said the the issue today for a lot of folks is not electricity but it's water which is you know if you if you don't have water for two days and you didn't know that you were supposed to be buying bottled water no one told you uh, that's a dangerous situation. Well, that's and something you point out in your story that it's not that everybody knew this exactly was going to happen, but they knew a storm was coming <laughs> and they knew it was going to be something that Texas doesn't usually deal with. So, you know, how bad was it in terms of people saying, listen, folks, you need to plan for X and it just didn't happen? That's what I think so many Texans are frustrated over, is we, especially in Houston. We know how to storm prep. Um, it's, it's like a well-oiled machine when you know there's a hurricane coming. You do your run to Home Depot, to HEB, you stock up on bottled water, on non-perishable food items, and, and you prepare for a week, two weeks, sometimes, God forbid, three weeks without power. Um, but no one said that that was likely to happen. And you know, covering energy, I had somewhat of a unique perspective in that I was hearing from folks on Friday saying, this looks pretty crazy. And at the time, even I having that in my ear was like, okay, well, you know, if we're not hearing from regulators and uh, leadership that we really need to be preparing for something that's bad that all these folks need to be so worried about, could it actually be that bad? And clearly we're seeing that it is. So, you know, there's a lot to that in terms of finger pointing about wind power going down and so on and so forth. But when we get into the systems, what ultimately really failed? You know, I think what is so terrifying is that it was a system wide issue. It's the way that our grid is set up, the way that we depend on the frankly, the fact that we consider natural gas to be 100% reliable and foolproof. And then when you have something as severe as this, that's just not the case. Um, And I talked to a couple uh, energy policy experts yesterday who said that was actually the the biggest surprise to them, folks who watch this every year, every day, um, was that natural gas was not the one that was able to perform um, in light of these temperatures. And, and I think that's what's also frustrating to folks who are watching all of that play out online, um, if, if they're able to get online, is that it, it's 
is this wind versus gas argument when in reality it's much more complicated than that and there's not one sexy answer but i think that's what as a state we're going to need to think about after this event is over is how do we actually want to address the situation because a lot of people are going to want answers right yeah go ahead no go ahead well we only have 30 seconds left rachel what is the solution i know it's complicated uh, but as an energy reporter what is the way to make sure that this doesn't happen again I mean, it's money. It, it would require tons of investment on all um, aspects of the supply chain. I mean, everywhere from, you know, making sure the pipes and infrastructure Thanks on the so upstream much. side of things and production are set up to withstand these temperatures to power plants. And then, you know, at the end of the day, whether our homes are able to protect against weather like this. Yeah, exactly. And as you say in your story, natural gas playing an outsized role in the disaster. Listen, they are the Lone Star State. They like being the Lone Star State, but being on your own power grid is going to have problems. As we've as we've seen. And look, I think what we have to keep in mind is that Texas is a place that doesn't get weather like this. People aren't prepared for it. They don't right. necessarily have jackets. They don't have snow plows. They don't have salt for the roads. It's right. a domino effect. Extreme weather, but not extreme cold weather. Right. And it certainly has implications. Rachel Adams heard you're amazing. Oil and gas reporter at Bloomberg News. Stay safe on the phone there in Houston and dealing, obviously, without power. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 11 minutes away from the closing bell on this Wednesday. Carol Master along with Tim Stenovic counting you down to the close. And joining us once again is Lincoln Ellis, Senior Investment Strategist and Chief Investment Officer of Global Family Office and Private Investment Office Services over at Northern Trust. $120 billion in assets under management by the firm. Lincoln joining us on the phone in Chicago on a day when we're right now at our best levels of the day, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's uh, green across the board. Lincoln, how are you? Carol, we're good. We're, uh, we survived, of course, another snowstorm of our own here in Chicago, and yeah. uh, things are looking up in this short week. Well, what is it like there? How cold is it, and what's the snow like? And you guys have power, well, right, though? Is that fair? <laughs> we do have power. I okay. mean, unlike Rachel, unlike Rachel, where we are, is uh, not, not, not a news story at all. It's uh, just a typical day in the, <laughs> in the month of February here in Chicago. No, things are good. Thanks very much. Good to be with you. So talk to us about kind of what's top of mind for you and, and for the clients that you work with. Yeah, so I, I wanted to uh, come talk with you guys about what we did at the end of 2020. We did a survey for the first time in a decade uh, of the Global Family Office uh, investing cohort. It's actually a much broader survey, a benchmarking survey that took into consideration t- issues that were top of mind, next generation, investing, and broader technological issues, and share some of the sort of uh, longer, the thoughts of longer duration investors, which I'm sure are very much top of mind, given the sort of toppy markets that we're looking at here. So what are headline findings from the survey? Yeah, so from an investment perspective, it was interesting to see people come into 2020, even ahead of the pandemic, skeptical about growth and continuing to keep that uh, as a distinct position from skeptical about uh, positions on corporate profits. So very much still in a risk on 
uh, uh, position. Concerns about valuations continue to permeate the, the, the ecosystem. Um, interestingly enough, the, 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 the issue that Dave Wilson just brought up around, around high yield and what to do uh, with the 40, right, of your 60-40, as, as, as my colleagues have, have written about recently, also continues to be uh, top of mind. And then this tsunami of, of, of money crashing on the waves of, 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 of private investing, what we've called private everything, um, is taking up more and more resources across the family office enterprise. So things like SPACs, <laughs> is that what we're talking about? And, and <laughs> at all, like, it's just, it's kind of amazing the amount of money that's out there chasing things. Yeah, and I think what we've seen in terms of family office investors is that they're being a lot more diligent about where and how they're putting capital to work in a zero interest rate environment where yields have really come in, although not, of course, of the last uh, 24 hours, but where, where the short end of the curve is quite uh, neatly priced. Uh, cash actually has become an option for uh, investments when markets sell off or when there are deals to be done, particularly in the private market. So SPACs is one sort of neighborhood of a broader conversation that I think investors are, are thinking about making uh, more direct investments. Uh, and you've seen significant activity in family offices becoming a unique source of capital for either private equity uh, owned or backed enterprises making those direct investments or families getting together themselves to buy businesses with which uh, they already have some familiarity or an expertise uh, given their entrepreneurial background. Wow. So so how are you seeing this play out in terms of, of, of overall portfolio, in terms of how portfolio construction is going, what you're doing, you know, in terms of how you're thinking about the right balance if, if these private investments are increasingly a part of the picture? Yeah, so it's all about liquidity management, and then this the the the, the piece that I touched on earlier, Tim, about sort of which you're alluding to here, which is what to do with the forty or what happens to fixed income or other sort of assets in a multi-asset class yeah. portfolio. It's really uh, you're seeing the same. Ki- it's important to remember. I think you're seeing the same kind of diversification. I had a, a conversation with a client yesterday about this. You're seeing a similar kind of diversification in the allocation of capital across the private spectrum, private equity, credit, venture capital, real estate, etc., that you would in a normal liquid markets portfolio. Uh, it's simply that those deals are um, more specific to perhaps geographies or uh, a particular thematic that a family's interested in. Obviously, uh, developments in healthcare and technology have become very interesting. Real estate, given the significant dislocations of last year, is of interest. Uh, the change in administration has put China back on the map. Right. And of course, when it comes to environmental things, uh, uh, carbon trading and, and other sort of second derivative energy trades are also on the, on the board. You know, if I just look at some of the stats, you know, as a result of this survey, um, Lincoln, the majority of your clients think the market is overvalued. I'm just looking at a pie chart, 68%. Uh, 32% in terms of the outlook for global growth for the next 12 months. 32% somewhat pessimistic. 
uh, somewhat optimistic, excuse me, 38% somewhat pessimistic, uh, 21% are neutral. And then I thought it was interesting too about kind of where they are investing in alt, especially when we tend to talk a lot about Bitcoin, we're dealing with the meme stocks, <laughs> we just talked about SPACs. Um, the majority still finding opportunity in private equity funds, the majority. I mean, when you talk about alts, that's where they're going. Yeah. Um, well, it, which is not to say, right, Carol, that there isn't interest in those other sort of more uh, eccentric or, or sort of new players on the block, but right. rather to say that, you know, long duration portfolio investors know that people who have uh, deep connections, particularly in the smaller and middle market buyout neighborhood, which is really where the majority of the value-added transactions versus the sort of financial engineering transactions, which happens at the top of the capital stack in terms of private equity. That's right. where the real value gets created, and that's where they're comfortable because those tend to be the businesses which have made these families into um, the sort of multi-generational investors that they are today. So that's where the market structure pushes them, and oddly enough, it coincides with their comfort level. Yeah, which all, which makes an awful lot of sense. Hey, Lincoln, thanks. Nice to catch up with you, and uh, take care of yourself. Lincoln Ellis, he's Senior Investment Strategist at Northern Trust Global Family Office, $120 billion in assets under management. On the phone from Chicago, I think how... In contrast to the story that we talked about, the most read, the 93-year-old who went after her grandsons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there's alternative investments and then there's alternative investments. Yeah, you don't have to invest in the sketchy thing that your grandkid is pushing you. <laughs> yeah, got to watch. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.